Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, once in a while, I break my own self-imposed format and talk to someone I've always wanted to interview. Be warned, this is one of those episodes. Before I tell you who it is, I've got some exciting news. We're turning Material Matters into an exhibition this September as part of the London Design Festival. It will be running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at the Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, across four floors that each tell a different, distinct, and I think genuinely fascinating material story. If you're looking for somewhere to exhibit at this year's festival, please drop me a line at grant at materialmatters.design. That's grant at materialmatters.design. So my guest this week is the hugely influential architect, designer, artist and educator, Nigel Coates. Nigel was a co-founder and leading light of NATO, the radical architecture collective that came out of the Architectural Association in the early 80s. As director of Branson Coates from 1984 to 2006, he crafted buildings and interiors across the globe, from Café Bongo in Japan to the National Centre for Popular Music in Sheffield. He's also created a slew of products for the likes of Fauna City and GTV, as well as exhibitions such as Exeter City and Mixter City at Tate Modern. Importantly, he did much of this while being Head of Architecture at the Royal College of Art. He's just about to publish an intriguing and occasionally quite racy memoir. It's a book that charts the changes in architecture in general, and London in particular. There are tales of extraordinary projects, of club culture, of parties, of friendships and loves, and of lives sadly lost. Nigel, thank you very much for doing this. It's a pleasure, Grant. (laughs) So... Tell me, where are you? You're definitely not in London. I'm not in London. I'm in a place where I've been basically enduring the pandemic, a house that I bought as a ruin in 1987. And uh, at this moment, I'm sitting in a room with all the shutters closed to avoid the sounds of birdsong and lawnmowers and all those (laughs) country things which might disturb us. So I'm in a chamber. (laughs) Our sitting room has been converted into a sound studio. Yes, yes, yes. And as you say, this was a wreck when you bought it in the late 80s and you've been slowly refurbishing it since then. Is refurbishment the right word or exhuming it almost? Discovering it, really, and liberating it, freeing it from being bound up where doorways were closed, arches filled in, beams had fallen, brambles had sprung from uh, the ground of the courtyard. It hadn't been lived in for over 20 years when I bought it. Mm. And it was what you call in English a wreck. (laughs) And uh, there were many wrecks in the countryside around here in the Siena province at the time. There are fewer now, some that are near motorways stranded by kind of modern development or with factories next door, but some in majestic settings on the top of hills with maybe a couple of cypress trees. Very sculptural, very beautiful. And a great signifier of the Tuscan countryside, postcard stuff to some. Although this house has far more cypress trees than that. But it is on top of a hill. It is a cliche, in part. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where you based yourself during the pandemic. You did a flit as London was locking down. How did that work? Well, it was really difficult to get out of London because 
airlines kept cancelling their flights, either because they weren't afraid to fly in or because they didn't have enough passengers or whatever. So when lockdown happened in March 2020, there was no travel was certainly off the menu. And eventually, my partner John and I got out on the 3rd of July, having booked for the 2nd of July, the 3rd of July, and the 4th of July. <laughs> and we got lucky on the 3rd, because that seemed to be the technique. It's like overbook, and if the flight got cancelled, there'd be the one the next day. What has lockdown been like in Italy? Uh, taken more seriously than in England. I mean, you may know that uh, we were restricted during the hard lockdown period. We couldn't go out of our borough, our comune. That wasn't allowed. And if you did, you had to have a piece of paper saying where you were going and why for each direction. So you'd go to the supermarket in another town and you could rely on blagging to the police that you needed to go because it was the nearest supermarket. However, you then need another form to say you're going home. So it was quite hardcore. And then as things started to evolve, there was a kind of traffic light system of which for each province or comune, which were more or less restricted according to the number of cases in that province. So, you know, Tuscany was medium. It wasn't as bad as Lombardy, and it wasn't as good as down south in Puglia and the, the southern end of the peninsula. And what's it like now? I mean, are people still wearing masks on public transport? They are. You're still required to show your green pass when you go into a restaurant. Right. You sort of have to make a show of wearing the mask when you go in. But obviously, when you sit down at the table, you can't carry on wearing your mask. <laughs> no, it becomes you difficult. You have to take yeah. it off. But it's sort of, I, I think, and of course, I haven't been in Britain since, so it's just been adopted as a way of behaving. And, you know, you go into a supermarket, and I went into one yesterday, and you have to wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask in the street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or you wear it under your chin. And then you lift it up if you're talking to somebody, even in the market, you're talking to somebody on a stall. And out of politeness, it's respectful. Yeah. It made me feel more comfortable. But that's not the only reason. The other factor is that if you're living in a house in the countryside, and I'm sure it would be the same in England, it means that you can walk in uninterrupted open space without the same kind of awareness of the restriction that you have in cities. So I'm sure I'm not alone in having optimized my relationship with the countryside during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You and me both. I find myself in slightly less romantic, but the Essex countryside. So there you go. Essex is also romantic, but with a slightly different lilt. Essex is a very underrated county in my view. That's for another day. I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, you've written this memoir and there are, there are a number of strands that run through it. But since we're talking about this Italian house, that is one of the strands that runs through the book from the late 80s till the present day, obviously through the pandemic. How important has the house been to you? Well, it was a dream when I bought it. It wasn't horribly expensive. It was a lot for me because I was a you know young professional. I was 38 or something, and I worked in Japan and had a bit of lolly that I, I had this idea that um, I'd be cooking steaks and radicchio on the open fire which I'd done at a friend's house. So in the beginning, it was sort of like a new lover. It was a place that teased me and persuaded me and seduced me because every little change that I made to the house 
by opening a window that had been closed up or a doorway or converting a room from an agricultural usage to one that could be part of a modern way of living in this house. Each of those changes I made extremely subtle. What I didn't do and didn't want to do, and I'm very pleased not to have done, is what most kind of newcomers do, is they get uh, an architect, haha, I didn't need one of those, <laughs> to do a design, then they screw the building till there's almost nothing left, leaving perhaps the walls, underpinning all the walls, draining the inside, scooping everything out, and then building some modern house inside with a kitchen downstairs and a sitting room and all the usual cliches, whether you come from California or Essex or Surrey or wherever the sort of Anglo-Saxon version of the house is not what I wanted. The animals live downstairs. And although there are only three cats here, they live upstairs with us. The downstairs part of the house has lots of traces of its previous peasant manifestation where floors are stone. The animals would have pissed on the floor and be sluiced out through a doorway There are subtle changes. There are glass doors where sometimes there were wooden ones, but it has a strong flavor of its agricultural origins. And I think that comes through in the book. You know, I've celebrated that as having its own architectural dignity, its own sense of functionality that just by coincidence has both an organic evolution. So parts of the house have been built over different times and for different reasons. But the result is a sort of coherent architectural entity, almost by accident. Your love of Italy started young. I think you were working in a clothes shop at the age of 16 when you ended up visiting a pen pal in Milan, I think. That's right. Obvious question. What is it about Italy? Why did you fall for Italy so hard so young? Because the people are really nice. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. There's a a humanity to just everyday interactions. But I remember so vividly on that very first trip, just tipping down into Lago Maggiore from Switzerland with my father and my sister on a sort of tour around Switzerland. The atmosphere was different. As soon as you cross the border, the buildings were dilapidated. They had great big lumps of plaster coming off the wall that you could see the brickwork or stonework underneath. People didn't care about sort of slapping white paint all over everything. The sense of evolution and time in the buildings and their sighting, whether on the side of a mountain or by the lakeside, it was more sensitive in terms of an architectural sensibility which at the time, I suppose, I hadn't really developed what I thought about architecture. But it also was exotic, you know. Mm. It was pine trees and lakes and beautiful light. It's that seduction of the Mediterranean, which is eternal. And another cliche for an English boy, as it happens from Malvern, which has kind of lovely hills, you know, is a sort of picturesque landscape. But here I found endless exploration. Mm, mm. That's Italy, (laughs) done in a nutshell. Should we talk about this book? It's being published by the ROBA in June. Why did you decide to write a memoir now? I mean, was there a reason or did the publisher come to you? The publisher came to me. I knew Helen Castle, who runs 
RIBA Publishing, from my experience with Architectural Design, where she was editor for many years. Yeah. She, I guess, had the idea that a memoir by me would be quite different from other architects. In fact, the other architects in this series are, first of all, Terry Farrell, and secondly, Rita Cook. Both sirs. I'm certainly not a sir. I might one day be a dame, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think she got what she was hoping for. Well, I think she might have done. I think she wanted something that was more intimate and more about my rub against the many worlds that's helped shape my career. Yeah, yeah. For an architect's memoir, it is enjoyably gossipy. Was it difficult to work out what you could and couldn't write about, Nigel? Oh, believe me. The editorial team were very clear about when I overstepped the mark. They're a small publisher, so they don't want to get sued. And anything that was even slightly contentious got rewritten or taken out. Or in some cases, I was asked to write to the people who'd been mentioned and get their permission to publish. Well, I was going to ask you about that, interestingly. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you asked Bob Geldof about the row you had at Jasper Conran's house. No, but, you know, there were other people sitting around the table and he can say that he didn't say it, but I know that he did say it and there are other people heard it too, so I don't know. There's lots about your friendship with Jasper Conran and you also own up to having a, a fling with him at one point. Did you write to Jasper and say, by the way, I'm saying this? Or how does that work? Yeah, Jasper was so fantastic. He said, if it happened, you can write about it. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I thought was just brilliant because, you know, not everybody was quite so up for it as that. But I write mostly about people that I love. Mm. And that's kind of easy. I don't think anybody wants to know about your gripes, really. No. At least I've touched on a few gripes, but they're sort of unspecified. The reader has to kind of fill in the gaps. Did you love your parents? It sounded like they had quite a difficult relationship. I mean, they married during the war and without wishing to pigeonhole people, your mother was quite arty, your father wasn't. As you say, you grew up in Malvern. Your parents broke up when you were 10 and your mother went to live in Cornwall. Your father ended up having custody. It sounds quite difficult, Nigel. It was quite brutal, I have to say. Now, I know that in this world, many families have complicated pasts and lots of kids grow up with one parent or a substitute for one of them. But at the time, which was, I suppose, 1959, my mother, as I explain in the book, She just couldn't stand the humiliation anymore. It had made her so nervous and the feeling of lack of self-worth was so strong that the more that my father could see that, the more he pushed her. And I'm sure she disappointed him in some ways. But when a wife left and felt that she had no alternative, it was so frowned upon. The man was distinctly the wounded party And as described in the book, the court gave ward of us two kids to my father, which was not necessarily without some kind of logic at the time, because he had a house and he had a job and he could look after us. My mother had none of those things and wasn't able to get any of them because any sort of divorce settlement, she was the scarlet woman and she would not have qualified to get anything. So she had to start again from scratch. So, you know, going to Cornwall was a way of running away and becoming 
She used to say, I need to be free. And I think that that use of the word freedom was ideological for her and her new husband. They lived a bohemian nomadic life, which contrasted full tilt with family life where kids go to school and they go through ambitions to stay or not stay at school and then maybe go to university. But as it happens, I was the only person in my family who went to university and that path was available to me. Well, you went to the grammar school. Were you encouraged to draw? Was the creative side encouraged there? No. <laughs> to put it bluntly, <laughs> there was no, I mean, there was an art class up to O-level and I didn't do O-level art. I was told, oh, you can do art. What's the point? Mm. Mm. And my father could draw. He didn't draw with kind of artistic imagination, but he could draw rather well. He could see light and shade. He was a photographer. He had some kind of sense of place, a very exciting sense of place, because we'd go on these incredible jaunts to visit all kinds of mad and wonderful buildings like castles and mansions and beauty spots and stuff. But he wanted me to be an engineer because he was a scientist. He thought, you can be a civil engineer. Why not? I didn't want to be a civil edge. So I was pushed towards physics and chemistry and maths. And then I kind of rebelled. I mean, a minor rebellion, having um, not really enjoyed the sixth form. I didn't do very well at the first sitting of the A-levels and decided to do another year. And in that third year of sixth form, I persuaded the school to allow me to go to Worcester Art School. And I'd go there every Wednesday afternoon and I was taught to paint. Isn't that fantastic? There was nobody at the school who could teach art. In fact, when it came to my exam, I was the only person sitting in the gymnasium, which was set up as the examination room. I was in there on my own with no mm. vigilance or anything. It was just... Uh, it was <laughs> and of course, I did better in art than I did in any other subject. Well, there's a lovely moment where you say your careers teacher reckoned you'd make a good bank clerk. Yeah. I would have liked to have gone in that bank. Well, I thought, fuck you at the time. <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> and what are you, a good teacher? Okay, all right, uh, that's your idea, but that's not going to happen. So when did the notion of becoming an architect happen? I know your stepmother, Winfrey, she didn't approve. Winray. Winray, a bigger part. No, she didn't approve at all because she thought I would turn out to be a fag if I was going to be an architect. Yeah, yeah. Which um, <laughs> she was right. <laughs> but it was a very unfair and, again, I think it was a form of rebellion. When it came to filling out that Ucker form and you have to kind of tune in to what you think might be a good suit of clothes for you to wear in the future. I went back to a, an interest I had in architecture when I was five or six years old. At that time, of course, it was a fantasy about the wonderful nature of buildings or going to visit a cathedral or hearing the echo in a big, you know, those sorts of things had stayed. But in the meantime, I'd sort of been buffeted around a bit and a bit lost until I kind of seized it once more in the completion of that form. That was the turning point, really, because the architecture suited me so well. I was good at it. I knew how to talk it through. I was kind of very 
avaricious about consuming ideas about architecture. And also, we're talking about the late 60s, revolutionary time with May 68 and all of that stuff. So there was philosophy and semiology and kind of new movies. And, you know, it was a time of great change. And architecture in England hadn't changed that much. I do mention in the book that at Nottingham, where I did my degree, it was made very clear to us that we could design anything we wanted as long as it had a flat roof and it was made of brick. Yes. But that was the mentality. I mean, it didn't really engage with what was thought to be new in architecture at that time, which, let's face it, was sort of archigram, which I didn't find out about until I was practically foot out of the door from Nottingham. Metabolism, which appeared in some books about ideas in architecture, you know, sort of introductory books that showed buildings that were cellular. And over that period, there were Cumbernauld new towns, which were a sign of change. But gradually, I realized that modernism was something that passed Britain by. It was too bound up in empire. You know, Lutyens was the avant-garde, if you please. <laughs> Not Le Corbusier, who maybe sort of set foot in England for like a week or something before he belted off to the States. You're quite rude about Le Corbusier and Louis Kahn in your university years. You had no interest in them, you say. I didn't, which was probably rather stupid. <laughs> but anyway, I think that's part of your kind of adolescence, isn't it? Is to know where to put your attention to help feed your ideas. And I think it was because it was the official line about what was acceptable in architecture and what wasn't. And of course, the tutors were versed in those particular great masters. And we weren't. We were looking for something more gritty. Yeah. And we were going to minor strikes and all that, you know, sort of outside the factory and being young socialists was part of the, yeah, yeah. it was a different yeah, yeah. time. You mentioned Archigram. I don't know if they count as gritty, but it was David Green of Archigram who encouraged you to go to the AA. It was, very subtly. What was London like at that time when you leave Nottingham and you head to London? When I was at Nottingham... A few of us mates would go, and I had a car, always had a car from when I could drive. We'd go to London for the weekend and go to a couple of shows and stuff. So it was a place to visit, but it wasn't really a place to further your ideas because, you know, didn't live there, lived in Nottingham. David Green appeared as a part-time tutor in my third year, and he comes from Nottingham, like Paul Smith, who opened his first shop in Nottingham famously. He was going around the studio looking at what we were, we were doing our technical submissions for our most developed project in third year. So this was like the last part of our training up to the exams for the degree. And I'd done this metabolist looking building. The project was an art center in Nottingham. And I'd done sort of giant jacks, it was an assemblage of jacks with capsule bases inside. And he looked at it with some admiration at the drawings and then said, well, but this looks as though you should be able to uncouple parts of it and assemble it in different ways. And I thought, gosh, you're right. What an idiot I've been. I've sort of adopted the look of metabolism, but not the principles as he was leaving my desk, he gave me a copy of Archigram 9. 
I'd never heard of Archigram, and David Green had a project log plug on the cover. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And he just sort of casually, you know, he didn't toss it, but it was like, it was a gesture as if to say, you know, if you're ever in London, why don't you drop by the AA? Well, I knew about the AA, but the AA was a private school. How the hell was I ever going to go there? I didn't think it was possible. I thought I had to operate within the state system. And only after I'd been in London for a year, or let's say six months until the need to apply to the AA, only then did I find out that I was eligible for a grant. Right, right. And when you got to the AA, what did you discover? Alvin Boyoski was head of school, Rem Coolhouse was a tutor. You describe Archigram being in every corner of the building. Yeah, well, it was in the atmosphere, really, because it was like a sort of continuous happening. <laughs> Everyone sat around in sort of, you know, in loons and um, sat around on, on giant sausage sofas. And there were kind of lectures, had sort of three or four projectors. Peter Cook was especially good at that. So, you know, if you only had one image on the wall, that was considered boring. Mm. You know, Peter Cook's lectures were, they were mind-bogglingly free. He would do a talk about how seaside towns in England could open up a whole approach to architecture, which was much more playful. And he did a lecture about the architecture of Indian restaurants done out of sort of cardboard and perspex with lights in. And I thought, that's fantastic. Well, it was sort of pop. Mm. It was incorporating real places, sometimes shabby, rundown places, into a discourse about architecture. And he was doing it because he thought it would annoy people. It would annoy the sort of English <laughs> establishment. And he was right. I was going to ask, what did your work look like at this point as a student? What kind of things were you doing? There were lots of balloons in my projects, balloons on strings, artificial trees. It looked a little bit archigrammy when I first started. And then when I discovered Casabella, which appeared in a box that was sort of dumped on the steps of the AA, it was the issue with uh, radical design with a gorilla on the cover. And it was sort of coincided with the show of Super Studio, Archizum, Gaetano Pesce, and other Italian radicals at the Museum of Modern Art, which I think took place in 1972, the new domestic landscape, yeah, yeah. which really opened things up for the Italians who were, you know, unabashed conceptualists and sensualists, as Charles Jenks said. But they were given a very serious platform in the Museum of Modern Art. The head of architecture at the Museum of Modern Art was an Italian theoretician and commissioned uh, the show. And it had an exquisite catalogue. Each of these architects were invited to create a space in an exhibition which described a domestic landscape, which perfectly blended ideas about architecture and spaces with the, the new... Uh, Italian interest in in design, in objects mm. and furniture and ways of making places to live. The new domestic landscape was kind of very literally taken in certain respects. And that set the scene for a shift, yeah. in my mind, towards the sort of politicization of architecture. Are you kind of out by now? 
your sexuality is, is that known? Were you aware of your sexuality at that point? When did you become aware of it? Oh, I was a late starter. Uh, it was kind of difficult because if you've been called a pansy and a sissy and a this, you know, it's sort of their pressure to experiment with sex according to the heterosexual model was almost total. You had to be convinced and that had to be the only way out would be to play your private life differently. So at first I met a bunch of people in London and I had a bunch of gay friends and we went out on a Saturday night. I must have been by that stage 22. I mean, I'd had a few little inklings in Italy where my blue eyes and blonde hair seemed to inspire people that I'd casually come across. Like one time I went to change some Travers checks in a bank and the guy on the other side of the glass looked at me and said, Oh, che bei occhi. <laughs> occhi blue. So I was bashful about it, of course, because, you know, you're 22. You feel like you're a man, you're grown up, and yet somebody is kind of paying attention to you in a different way. And I think that was part of the attraction of being in Italy. That I, felt. <laughs> I was sort of, there was currency in it, for goodness sake, that doesn't really happen in England. It was sort of, it was a bit banal in Earl's Court by comparison. Mm. But I took it slowly. And then I suppose I'd finished at the AA, so we're talking about 1975, and I met this guy who was at St. Martin's, who's Portuguese, and we had a passionate fling that turned out to be a four-year, no, an eight-year story. Four years which were fantastic and four years which were very difficult. And in that time, he went on from St. Martin's to the Royal College of Art, so suddenly... I didn't just have friends in architecture. I had friends at the RCA and they were much cooler, much more kind of demonstrative than my AA folk. There were a few AA people, but it was really quite sort of marginal. And I don't really remember at that stage, by 1975, when I was with Antonio, we were, we were just who we were. Yeah. And we started meeting all sorts of people. We met Derek Jarman. We met tons of artists. We were going to openings. We were kids with no money, but we were sort of participating in quite an open and multivarious kind of London scene. Yeah, yeah. You were in Jubilee, briefly. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dancing with Antonio <laughs> in some scuzzy nightclub. <laughs> did punk change your thinking? Oh, absolutely it did. Your kind of bricolage aesthetic is quite punky, and obviously the NATO magazines have, have a kind of punk ethos, I would posit. Well, the, the NATO magazines come along in 1983. We True. started putting the first one together, which is six years after punk first burst out. But with Antonio and his bunch of people from Portugal who lived in Notting Hill Gate, and various other friends, we'd go to the Roxy in Covent Garden and see lots of punk bands. And we weren't like, say, full, none of us were full on 100% punks with spiky hair and all that. But we did have plastic trousers that we made ourselves. And we did, we did go some way towards the punk aesthetic. But it didn't so much matter what you looked like. You know, we're reading fanzines. Fanzines were 
sort of badly printed, deliberately badly printed, just like the clothes were sort of almost deliberately badly made. And it was a sensibility. You could live it. And when I was a young teacher, at first uh, an assistant to Bernard, and then Bernard went off. Bernard Shumi, yeah. He went off to live in New York because he thought it was much cooler to be there. Then there was all this stuff in London that, to my mind, although it took a while to discover it, there was a natural fit with what architecture could be. Mm. You know, people were on the dole, but people were also starting to use their own video cameras. And there was sort of the dawning of a kind of individually based technology that meant that you didn't just watch television, you could start to make television. And in my case, with Antonio, sometimes we were on television. (laughs) The mix had changed quite a lot. There was lots of crossover, Mm. and we weren't quite so contained. Well, I was going to ask, because by the end of the decade, you're a master at the AF Diploma Unit 10, which became famous within architecture circles. So what was the thinking behind that unit? I mean, maybe you've already kind of indicated where it was heading. I don't think people understood it at the time. They thought that we were anarchists, which wasn't the case at all. We were just playful. That's one thing. I'd made some attempts to set projects which were in quite sort of fancy parts of London, and they didn't really work. But when I started to set projects in Docklands and East London, the students got really, really excited about the possibilities of what these parts of London could be. Because, you know, the docks were basically condemned and either filled in or destined to be sort of quick fix buildings that didn't really have the sort of gravitas of the rest of London. The London Docklands Corporation didn't really know what it was trying to develop. And even the idea of Canary Wharf was only just being formed. And yet the Docklands had all this history. It was connected to the empire and the world. The docks had the names of places around the world. It was full of layers. It was almost crying out to be interpreted artistically and archaeologically. So instead of pursuing the archigram idea of making everything fun and beautiful, we thought, let's make it gritty. Let's make it kind of industrial. Let's have people living in factories. Let's have cranes moving overhead. The the feeling of a place which is like a kind of permanent building site became a sort of, it wasn't a prescribed vision, but the grit of industrial buildings and the machinery that make buildings seemed to blend together into some notion of the city. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the famous story about what happened with your unit at the AA with a panel of external examiners who included Richard Rogers, James Sterling, Bernard Toomey, and they all failed your students. Then legend has it you waited till they left and you passed them all. But what happened? No, that's not quite right. Well, that's uh, the legend, you see. That's the okay, legend. Well, I'm, so, I'm wanting you to, so to correct what it. happened was Richard Rogers was the chair, and I think it still happens at the A like this now, but the external examiners are a big group of people. They're sort of 10, 12 people who are invited to examine in pairs. So they split up and they're prescribed different units to go and look at. And the two people that came to look at Unit 10, which that year 
was all um, three-dimensional drawings done with acrylic and oil pastel. Nothing was really a plan or a section, (laughs) which apparently was near to a crime. And James Sterling and Ed Jones came to look at ours and they sort of nodded like dogs on the back shelf of a Hillman Minx. You know, yes, 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 uh, understand. Yes, you're looking at Docklands, blah, blah. And then when it came to the meeting at the end of the day, which took place, still takes place in the library, the diploma had already been awarded by the school to the students who thought should pass. But This event was about the RIBA part two, because that's what the external examiners are looking at. And when it came to Ed Jones and James Sterling to report back on what they'd seen, they said they couldn't see how the work presented by Unit 10 could be considered to be architecture. And Alvin said, this is a very serious allegation. And... Richard Rogers and Alvin had to decide how to proceed. Could you fail an entire unit? It was, of course, an extreme thing to do because it was so total that it had to be reconsidered. So Sverfen and Bernard Chumi were kind of requested to go and look at the work. <laughs> of course, Bernard, who'd been very critical of my students' work the year before, had shown that he wasn't simply nepotistic towards me and my students um, because of that. But somehow they were um, permitted to look again and they passed all the students. So it was taken as a block. And the differences between one student's work and another were not really looked at. And when all the fuss had died down, at least, well, it didn't die down really, because two days later it was on the front page of Building Design, which was kind of ready in the wings with anything that was contentious. That was what kept the readership happy. But suddenly, because of the BD story, me and my students were one less threat than terrorists. We were, at the very least, architectural anarchists and wanted to overthrow the system which I think was an overreaction because we were just, (laughs) you know, we were just doing stuff that we thought, was it such a terrible idea to suggest putting new metal corrugated roofs on old buildings? Was that really so kind of against the principles of architecture and other moves like that? Was it terrible to represent a prostitute in a drawing of a development in Docklands? It was actually quite funny. It's gritty, all right, but it wasn't, um, it was misinterpreted as being more dangerous than it really was. Mm. Mm. And out of all this, obviously, narrative architecture today, well, NATO happened. I mean, you were a collective who made, what, three issues of the, the magazine? We did, yes. I like to say that we lasted as long as the sex pistols. <laughs> was one hour. <laughs> How did the collective work? Were you in charge, Nigel? Well, I was the grown-up, wasn't I? I was the sort of mother hen or something. And they were just so fantastic. All And there were other fantastic people in the unit as well, but the people that eventually became part of the group were the people who wanted to go that extra mile and wanted to do a publication, which was... Alvin's idea, he said, look, you've got to tell people what this is all about. You've got to explain it to them. 
And he wanted to make a nice book. And we thought a magazine was a much more credible way forward. And magazine just suited, you know, you've got nine people in this group. Uh, it's quite a lot of people, but nine people doing a magazine together, nine articles, nine stories. It just fitted perfectly. It was a natural evolution. And uh, that's how the first one came about, was sort of recapping what they'd done in their final year at the AA, but also with some new photography, some real live people. I wanted real people photographed on the cover, not just pictures of buildings, because I thought that life itself could be a path to understanding buildings and vice versa, you know, a dialogue between the two. And fashion magazines had people on the cover, but architecture, no, 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 never, never, never. Architecture magazines had to have at the very least a drawing, if not a picture of a building. So most magazines like Architectural Review, they didn't want to publish anything that wasn't actually built. Mm. So that meant all that stuff about, you know, the kind of playfulness of what was going on in the AA and what was going on in the NATO group and all of that didn't really qualify to appear in Architectural Review, didn't exist as far as they were concerned. Because the general consensus was the stuff you were doing with NATO was unbuildable. But then you did build a version of it in Japan. How did that come about? It came about not to do with NATO at all. It came about because Antonio and I had sort of stripped out all the crappy furniture from our flat in South Kensington. And we'd sort of made it into a, an expression of our relationship and our artiness and our his work with photography. Uh, kind of, it was existential. And I painted clouds on the ceiling and there were little interventions around the flat, but it was very sparse. And Peter York of Sloan Ranger fame was a friend of some of our friends at the RCA. And he'd walked along the road and seen this flat, which was rented at the time. South Kensington was really scruffy, not, not full of sort of rich people's houses like it is now, he wanted to meet us. So a tea party was arranged with these friends from the RCA. And he wrote his first interiors piece in a magazine called Harper's and Queen, which was a sort of fashion magazine principally, but it had a sort of literary, witty commentary side as well. So more than Vogue. Vogue didn't have that. Harper's was the smart one. Because of this story in Harper's, everybody in London with any kind of awareness had seen this article and knew and wanted to come and visit our flat. And it was suddenly we were sort of minor celebrities with this six-page story in Harper's. Then the story got taken up by Cosmopolitan magazine and World of Interiors, which, you know, we're talking at a time when these were all-powerful publications, not the sort of marginal entities they are now. And the story got syndicated to Japan to a magazine called Brutus. And the editor of Brutus had a friend in Tokyo called Sai Chen, who had lived for some time in California, but had gone back to Tokyo and wanted to open a restaurant. And he wanted to work with somebody from London. So he got in touch with me 
I guess through a letter, I don't remember, but there was no internet or email or anything like that. He came to visit me. I was designing Jasper Conrad's house by then mm. in one of my rooms in the flat. He gave this speech about all these things he was doing in Japan. He was working for this huge fashion corporation that um, had built an island in Kobe. And the island had with tons of buildings, had kind of stadia and museums and offices, and they were restoring Japanese castles. You know, it was a kind of story. He was telling me that the company he was working with had a lot of money and immense power, and maybe I was going to be called upon. But it didn't seem real. It seemed like a joke. It seemed like a fantasy. So I'd forgot about him and didn't think he would ever resurface. But then he changed tack because he stopped working for this big corporation and wanted to open a restaurant of his own in Tokyo. So he was looking for a property in which to make it. And he, want, he decided he wanted to work with me. He liked the mood of the story that he'd seen in Harper's and Brutus and all these other things. Yeah, yeah. Which was bit decayed, a bit Italian, I have to say, a bit playing on sort of decay and on the sense of time and that European thing of what became shabby chic, I suppose, years later. But the shabbiness was part of the story. In Japan, which had obviously recovered from the war, everything was sort of Californian looking and kind of scrubbed clean and perfect and sort of, it didn't have the subtlety, it didn't have nuance. That's what he was after. Mm. That sort of bedded in European feel, which is true of, you know, certain parts of London where the buildings, let's face it, were, they were filthy dirty. They were all black at the time. They hadn't been cleaned. There was a sense of decadence about London as there was about Paris and Rome and all the places that I was tuned into myself. And he had picked that up through this article in Brutus. Right. But presumably he didn't expect you to lash aircraft wings to the front of buildings and that kind of the stuff you got up to while you were out there. Well, the very first project was the Metropole Restaurant. And he said he wanted a blend of a, an old European library and a gentleman's club. And I flung in a couple of extra sort of oldie-worldie, <laughs> a theatre and an artist studio. In building up an atmosphere that corresponded to what he was looking for, it meant we sort of invented a new way of doing a project where lots of the money was spent on things that we'd bought or we'd found. For example, there was a sort of proscenium arch that was kind of cut off on one side as though a wall had driven into it. Mm. Everything was sort of slightly discoordinated, asymmetrical, but had the vestige of symmetry, as though it had been adapted. And you can see where, you know, in the pictures it looks very formal and very classical, but it wasn't because everything was deconstructed or re-kind of configured or interrupted. Mm. And it had real things, like we got all these plaster figures from the British Museum, from their plaster studio. Lots of sort of Athena, kind of a whole load of artists, white gesso figures. And we bought antique furniture 
I commissioned work from people I'd met at the Royal College of Art. So I had a budget. They gave me a budget to do all this stuff. And they said, well, what about the furniture? Uh, what are we going to do? The and I said, oh, I'll do a sketch. And so I did a couple of sketches of the furniture. And they said, okay, we'll make it. <laughs> so, so, oh, okay, you're going to make it. That's fantastic. So we had to draw it properly. And suddenly we had to think about how you make a chair. Mm. You seem very adept at picking up talent during that period. Tom Dixon worked on these projects. Mark Quinn was involved in some of them. Because I had this budget. It corresponds to all that I've been talking about before, about adaptation or making changes to old buildings by adding new bits on. So mm. I thought the projects would be much richer and more enjoyable and more real, more Euro-layered if there was work by lots of different people. So I was kind of like the director in a movie. I was kind of art directing it. And I knew Edward Allington and I knew Andre Debray and I met people at the RCA. You know, it was that kind of unfolding of a creative London that was about to burst. Mm. And it just happens that my kind of coming of age as a designer coincided with that era. And I, there had been eras like that before, like in the Festival of Britain, there were loads of clever people, but somehow that all sort of fell apart. But it came back in the mid-80s with a vengeance. Yeah, can we talk about London? It's another strand that runs through the book. And at one point you talk about an exhibition you did called Ecstasy, a project you'd revisit from time to time. You write that in many ways, Ecstasy anticipated millennial London, particularly the disconnect between form and function. What it underestimated was the degree to which London is constrained by land rights and leases and how it would monetize every orifice and protrusion lacing either with oligarchical gain whenever it could. I was quite intrigued by that. Have you fallen out of love with the city, I wonder? I hope I haven't. But having been here for nearly two years, it's something I want to put to the test. Because I found London encyclopedic and endlessly discoverable. And it's certainly true that certainly in this century, and the kind of the beginnings of all this are in the 90s, mm. When London became a place to invest, it became not just the property of oligarchs, but of developers and the politicians that could see that London was going to be top city, principally because it's of the financial centre or the sort of Canary Wharf City of London axis, but also a place that would sort of deny its complexity and construct uh, mega projects, mega developments that would offer the kind of living experience that was sort of neutralized and kind of devoid of history. I think it is the pornification of London. But it seems so naive to not see how a city assembles all these components, the making of money, and the sort of the permission to invent. And I think the invention side has been pushed out. In fact, although there are more architects per square foot in London than anywhere else on the planet, most of the buildings in London are terrible. They're terrible. <laughs> They're shameful. Look at the river. Look at the river. What oh, has been wow. done to the river? Yeah, it's yeah. criminal. It's so banal it's like that awful thing at Vauxhall with the sort of turkey wings on the top mm. 
what is that about? And it doesn't stop there. It's every building, pretty much. There's the occasional Richard Rogers kind of fine piece of high tech. But most of it is sort of shamefully poor and is not architecture, in my view. Yeah. Can we talk about the major building that you have in the capital, the extension of the Jeffrey Museum, which is now the Museum of Home, which opened in 1998, I think I'm right in saying? Yes. Does that have a relationship with your thinking with Exeter City? It always feels kind of rather demure to me. I'm always vaguely surprised when I walk in that you designed it. It is demure, but it's a demure, you know, that was, that, that's what they wanted. They wanted something that was seductive, but in the most quiet and subtle way. And what else could you do, really? I think um, it's a response to a situation. There were lots of constraints. It couldn't be seen from the front facade of the museums where the arms houses are seen with the now rather discredited statue yes. of um, Jeffrey in the niche. They were so constrained, they're constrained by the pattern, by the path for the visitor to go through this sequence of arms houses like a sort of continuous corridor. But uh, we made something which acknowledged the existing vernacular and sort of refined Georgian vernacular of the original. And so I took that type and basically bent it, made a horseshoe shape out of it. And it was about kind of introducing the visitor to the unexpected, but not by kind of in-your-face stuff. It was meant to be subtle, and I think it is subtle. It is subtle. And I think it stands up as it is. There's one thing I don't like about it, which is the staircase, because its engineering is too heavy. But the general idea of it, of being something that you discover, I think will have withstood the right-and-right adaptation of the building because now, you know, the railway now functions when we built it. That railway wasn't rehabilitated. Mm. So in a sense, the back of the museum has now become the front and you enter the new museum through our space. And I think it was very well done, this latest phase that we didn't do. Mm. The other building that people will know you for in the UK is National Centre for Popular Music in Sheffield, opened in nineteen nine which is where we first met, actually. Extraordinary building made up of four stainless steel drums. It closed very soon after opening. I think it's now a student union or part of the student union for yes, Sheffield. where they Hallam. have their concerts on Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good student union, actually. I've been around it. Everything's a bit sticky, like student unions kind yeah, of generally are. they don't clean it properly, do they? It became shabby. If there was any one building that was meant to be kept clean, it was the National Centre for Pop Music because it was shiny steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have a sense that project wasn't going to work early on in terms of what was in the interior, the exhibition itself? We did. We actually said, Doug Branson, my partner, and I said to the clients, your plans for the interior are not going to work. And they said, mind your own business, you London types don't know what we're doing <laughs> up there. So we were sort of swept off the table, pushed aside, and they got some set designers and... I think they just kind of didn't really have the experience. They couldn't balance what the attraction was alongside what people had to pay to go there. And in 1999, £7.50 was a lot to pay mm. to go to a museum, a museum where you were confronted with sort of musical instruments that you could sort of bash as you pleased, or yeah. in another part, 
a display of Barbie dolls in sort of rock chick outfits. I mean, it just was appalling. How do you feel the opening day in 99 when you're there? You must have a sense that this thing is going to rapidly sink. Is it a sinking feeling for you? Well, we suffered for it, very much so, because we got the blame, Mm. because we're the architects. Architects always get the blame. It's like institutions, you know, when something goes well, it's the institution that did it. And when something goes badly, it's the professor or the head of department who did it. You can't really win. I think the building's exciting. I was most interested in that building, once again, like the Jeffrey, of the visitor experience, of how it would reveal itself gradually and that it would pose choices and questions for the visitor that would not be prescribed. It wouldn't be like the enfilade of the Jeffrey Museum where you would go literally in one door and then you go blink, 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 blink. You'd be presented with four different options and you could decide which one you wanted to visit first Mm. and the idea of the four drums came from the original brief where they said they wanted four galleries so when we submitted the expression of interest we added a sketch of mine which was of four circular forms like kind of carboys or slightly industrial looking that seemed to be being pushed up from the center as though they were being tilted outwards, as though there was some kind of geological force underneath that was pushing the thing up. In fact, that reflected the idea that you'd enter the ground floor between the drums and Mm. then in the centre of the building, you'd be taken up a staircase and then you'd emerge into another space that would occupy as though pushing out like a liquid or a jelly between these four drums. So there was a sort of elaborate spatial configuration, even though it looked so obvious. So on the one hand, it had an iconic status, but on the other, it had a sense of progression and evolution for the visitor. Mm. Mm. Did you also feel the same about the Millennium Dome? Because you did the body zone that were involved in the body zone there. It was a poison chalice, really, the Millennium Dome, and we knew it when it came along, but it was a hard one to refuse. And in London, that possibly was the apotheosis of all the creativity that I mentioned before in the, in the 80s, that sort of by the time it got to the end of the 90s, lots of us had grown up and people could see ways in which money could be made and culture could contribute to a better life, could get people out of their houses, made them more curious, make them aware of art. I mean, fantastic, because I don't think art really ever had that much graft in Britain until that time. Mm. Can we talk about your relationship? Because we talked about New Labour and the work you're getting under New Labour. Can we talk about your relationship with the establishment? Because you sometimes refer to yourself in the book, or people refer to you in the book as an enfant terrible of the architecture world. And yet, by the same token, you've sat on Prince Charles's advisory architecture group. I mean, you were briefly, as we've talked about, New Labour's kind of architect du jour. You did the Powerhouse UK project at the Horse Guards Parade. You're in the frame, which I didn't know, to build a, a bridge in memory of Princess Diana. It seems to me that there are moments when either you want to be part of the establishment or the establishment wants to include you. I'm trying to work out which. They flirted with me. And I didn't always say no. (laughs) And the people around the prince thought that I would be a good asset, that I'd soften the kind of controversy 
not solely, but that it would sort of shift the mix a bit because things were going a bit wrong at that time <laughs> with the fallout from the National Gallery and all of that yeah, carbuncle yeah, yeah. stuff. He needed a little bit of um, modernity, so I was kind of opted in. They were using you, Nigel. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, but I knew that, and I was <laughs> willing to go along with it. And I, I've got the stories to tell. Plus, he yeah, opened yeah. the Jeffrey Museum, New Wing, and they were so pleased that the Prince of Wales was there to cut the ribbon. I don't know. His school didn't really work out, and. I did contribute, but I don't think anything I said made any difference, to be honest. What's notable in the book is, you know, after this splurge of work in the 80s and 90s that we've talked about, I mean, there is less actual building. There are lots of exhibitions, there's furniture, there's product design, the likes of Fornacetti and Nude and Slamp. And obviously you're running the architecture department at the RCA, which produced a tremendous number of writers, you know, Will Hunter, yeah. Ollie Wainwright, <laughs> The Guardian, Douglas Murray. It's really intriguing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering if you regret not having built more. Um, yeah, perhaps. I think if we hadn't had the Sheffield project to be so controversial and we hadn't had the dome to be basically crucified by the people who ran it, <laughs> who overestimated the returns for the visitor numbers. In both cases, their business plans were faulty. I guess we would have built a bit more. Mm. But having said that, it's been a very interesting trajectory to think about some other essential qualities that are in the architectural sensibility that doesn't require a building to prove that it's there. Yeah, sure. And as I've said before, most building is not architecture. It's an aberration away from architecture. And that doesn't mean to say that there has to be a sort of tick box list of qualities that a building has in order to make it architectural. I think this farmhouse that I'm in is architectural, but no architect was ever involved in realizing it, apart from me. And then I've just been tinkering with it. So I've discovered that architectural substance exists in all sorts of other forms and in ideas. And I know that sounds like a bit of a cop-out, because to many people, if you ain't building it, you're not an architect. Well, I never really wanted to be that kind of architect anyway. Yeah, yeah. I didn't expect to build anything. I thought I was just going to be a teacher and a thinker and a writer. But I think that people like me have an important role to play in the furthering of architecture. And if you think of Piranesi, or you think of Le Coeur, or you think of... John Soane, he built a lot, but he didn't build anything like the degree to which he imagined he could build. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the sort of profession is dominated by, you know, people like Norman Foster, who's a great architect, of course, and he wants to rebuild cities in Ukraine. But I don't know, there's something sort of missing from the cleverness and the sensibility and the way in which an architect or groups of architects can actually get under the skin of what makes something a place special. 
we're coming to the end of our time, but it's an important thing that I think comes up in the book, which I do need to talk to you about, where you talk about the culture of the construction, building, architecture industry, and you write that while in fashion and design, queerness was not an issue in architecture, it was so risky to declare yourself gay that few queer architects ventured into the open. The architect conformed to the heterosexual stereotype. And you add, homophobia gnaws away silently at any respect. And while it's impossible to call out, you just feel it in your bones. So I guess I'm asking you, do you think your sexuality prevented you from getting work? And also, do you think the industry is changing? Uh, I'd like to think it's changing, but I don't think so, really. I think the industry is absolutely sort of is in the dark ages. Because if you think about transgender in sport, think about in the movies, in fashion, even in finance, you know, they'll come across people who are quite sort of chilled about being of various other persuasions than the, than the heteronormative one. But in architecture, it's sort of still got a tweedy, you know, the architect is usually male and has a compliant wife and kind of sometimes a quite a boisterous wife, sometimes even <laughs> a partner wife. It's sort of the evidence is that it's changed very little. Despite AJ's surveys of how queer people feel in offices and whether they feel that there's, they're sort of a subject to homophobia and all of that, and it would appear that they do feel subject to homophobia. And, um, you know, there are students who bravely do gay-related projects submitting as part of their design effort in their degrees. And people will generally, I think that people will try to test their identity as much as possible when they're students. But when it actually comes to practice and the people who are kind of most powerful in practice, it all looks pretty tweedy and pretty straight. And I do mention that, for example, the Royal Academy of Arts has a fixed number of academicians. I forget exactly how many it is, but it's around 100, and around 15 of them are architects. And there hasn't been one that's openly gay, not one of the architects ever, unless John Stone was, but who knows about that? We're never going to find out. But isn't it weird? Apparently... And who, apart from me, and of course there were, <laughs> famously in America, there was Philip Johnson, and uh, who was also a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a few others. Frank Israel. Uh, I shouldn't mention more names because they, it's not fair because I don't have the evidence. But it's sort of clear to me that there is a kind of unspoken conformity in architecture which constrains it. It goes against the idea that the architect is somehow driven by social consciousness and is able to, often as students, be on the side of the user. But being on the side of the user goes out of the window because the user doesn't have the money. And that's why, going back to something you mentioned earlier, that when I did Ecstasy, I didn't really evaluate the constraint that land values yeah, yeah. put on uh, the way that a city can evolve. 
And of course, the way it works is that you acquire a load of sites, little Georgian houses or whatever they are, or kind of sheds, whatever. You acquire a load of sites, bundle them all together, knock the lock down, and then put some huge, completely other-scaled construction on it. That's the game. It's not the London I loved. It's not the layering and the complexity and the discovery and the kind of intelligent way of using a city. It's just development. Mm. And I think that goes along with all the heterosexual stuff, the heteronormative stuff. And I, I'm not cowering because I'm quite comfortable in my own skin. And I guess I've thought about it more. I've even written a little bit about it more recently. But I think it's important to say that there's a fracture between modern values and the way the profession is set up and what its values are. Mm. Just picking up the final thread from the book, because you've been very generous with your time and I appreciate it. Obviously, you talk about Doug Branson through the book, your partner in, in architecture, and you talk later on about your partner, the filmmaker John Mabry, your partner in life. But I guess the character who crops up most often is Zaha Hadid. It's six years ago that she died. And I guess I'm keen to know what she meant to you both personally and professionally. Well, we, as the book explores, I haven't really gone, I haven't stepped outside that much out of my own experience with Zaha. And we were young tutors at the same time at the AA. Mm. She graduated after I did, but I had a few years out and then came back into the school. So we were more or less set up to, um, our units were practically running in parallel and we each had a mentor. No, Zaha's mentor was Rem and Ilya Zengelis, but OMA. And my mentor was Bernard Chumi. They both, for their independent reasons, um, needed to leave the AA and go off and do their own thing. So Zaha kind of acquired Rem's unit and I acquired Bernard's. And Alvin really encouraged us. We weren't teenagers exactly, but we were young folk who were discovering our own creative language. And I'd actually done a project quite early on, which was sort of queer project in a gallery in Florence that that was in sort of the late 70s before punk really got hold. I called it the night lives of the artists, which uh, I think was quite witty, really. And it was proposing a place where guys could hang out in a public toilet in the middle of the um, Piazzale degli Uffizi, which is one of the most formal spaces in Florence. And she was doing her wild sketches and she was looking at architecture almost like a a sort of form of geology in which you could accelerate the process of change so that rock formations could slip and slide and fold and crack. And that sort of understanding of space was quite new. And so we each had a thing going. And Alvin knew that. So we were always invited to dinner at his house after someone had given a lecture. Some visitor had sort of dropped in. And we were the guests because we were both single at the time, mostly. And he was nurturing us. Mm. And any time we'd had a little win or anything, he'd sort of have a stick our work up in one of the gallery spaces of the school. There was a kind of um, encouragement. Anyway, there were quite a lot of little references to Zaha of kind of, 
And what I was trying to do with all of that was to sort of colour for the reader the things that happened and the people that I came up against and show really how all of that, even the sort of wild parties and all of that, they all those events folded into my work. And I think they folded to some extent into Zaha's as well, although mm. Zaha was more her work it didn't relate to fashion and pop culture and all that in the same way that mine did. Mine had a sort of ultra-realism side to it. But hers was more in the ether. She created her own ether. And then, of course, she could sort of translate that into jewellery and shoes and all of that. It was a sort of intense vision that she could capture in a sketch. We both drew lots. And I miss her terribly. Bless her. I don't think she was um, that happy towards the end, really. She'd allowed the success of the office to somehow fill up all of her life. And it was incredibly demanding. She was always on planes. She was exhausted. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Zaha is not here to answer any of this. And so I've been careful not to be... You know, I'm just describing somebody who was a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, Nigel, that was lovely. I think our time is nearly up. I mean, all I would ask is plans for the future. What can we expect from you? I don't know, really. I'm working with people in Vietnam at the moment, and I'm working with people in Florence, and I'm work I'm doing small projects. Yeah, yeah. So small projects, but we can expect stuff. I'm not imagining that I'm suddenly going to get an office with 300 people in it. And I can't think of anything worse at this stage in my life. It's about finding architecture in small things and in everyday life. That's what I enjoy. It seems reading the pages, it seems like a life very well led. Nigel, thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. It was great. Oh, it's been great to talk to you, Grant. You're very good at asking the questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had some experience. Yes, you have. Lives in Architecture, Nigel Coates, is available from RABA Publishing and lots of good bookshops. I heartily recommend it. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design, and you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter, and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Although, I should mention, there is a brand new Material Matters website on its way very, very soon, so look out for that. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message to the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.